Chapter One, Part Two of A Voyage Round the World in His Majesty's Frigate Pandora. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is recorded here by Roy Schreiber. Chapter One, Part Two. There was at the same time a party embarked by water under the command of Lieutenant Hayward, who took with him some of the principal chiefs, amongst whom was Odidi, before mentioned by Captain Cook, who went on a voyage with him, but fell into disrepute amongst them, from affirming he had seen water in a solid form, alluding to ice. He also took with him one brown, an Englishman, that had been left on shore by an American vessel that had called here for being troublesome on board, but otherwise a keen, penetrating, active fellow, who rendered many eminent services both in this expedition and in the subsequent part of the voyage. He had lived upwards of twelve months amongst the natives, adapted perfectly their manners and customs, even to eating of raw fish and dipping his roast pork into a coconut shell of salt water, according to their manner, as a substitute for salt. He likewise avoided all intercourse and communication with bounty people, by which means necessity forced him to gain a pretty competent knowledge of their language, and from a natural complexion that was much darker than any of the natives. Captain Edwards, had taken every possible means of gaming the friendship of Temerara, the great prince of the upper district, by sending him very liberal presents, which effectually bought him to our interest. The mutineers were now cut off from every hope of recourse. The natives were harassing them from behind, and Mr. Hayward and his party advancing in front, under cover of night, they had taken shelter in a hut in the woods, but were discovered by Brown, who, creeping up to the place where they were asleep, distinguished them from the natives by feeling their toes, as people unaccustomed to wear shoes are easily discovered from the spread of their toes. The next day Mr. Hayward attacked them, but they grounded their arms without opposition. Their hands were bound behind their back, and sent down to the boat under a strong guard. During the whole business there was only two natives killed, one was shot in the dusk of the evening, two nights before the people surrendered, by one of the sentinels, who had his musket twice beaten out of his hands, from the natives pelting our party with large stones. But the instant he was shot, some of his friends rushed in and carried off the corpse. The other native was shot by the mutineers. When attacked by the natives, they took to a river, a stone being thrown by one of the natives at the wife or woman of one of the mutineers, enraged him so much that he immediately shot the offender. A prison was built for their accommodation on the quarter-deck, that they might be secure and apart from the ship's company and that it might have every advantage of a free circulation of air, which rendered it the most desirable place on the ship. Orders were likewise given that they should be victualled in every respect, in the same as the ship's company, both meat and liquor, 
and all the extra indulgences with which we were so liberally supplied, notwithstanding the established laws of the service, which restricts prisoners to two-thirds allowance. But Captain Edwards, very humanely commiserated with their unhappy and inevitable length of confinement, Orope, the king's brother, a discerning, sensible, and intelligent chief, discovered a conspiracy amongst the natives on shore to cut our cables should it come to blow hard from the sea. This was more to be dreaded, as many of the prisoners were married to the most respectable chief's daughters in the district opposite to where we lay at anchor, in particular one, who took the name of Stuart, a man of great possessions in landed property, near Matavivi Bay, a gentleman of that name belonging to the bounty, having married his daughter, and he, as friend and father-in-law, agreeable to their custom, took his name. O to the king, his two brothers, and all the principal chiefs, appeared extremely anxious for our safety, and after the prisoners were on board, kept watch during the night, were always keeping a sharp lookout upon our cables, and continually spurring the sentinels to be careful in their duty. The prisoners' wives visited the ship daily, and brought their children, who were permitted to be carried to their unhappy fathers, to see poor captives in irons, weeping over their tender offspring, was too moving a scene for any feeling heart. Their wives brought them ample supplies of every delicacy that the country afforded while we lay there, and behaved with the greatest fidelity and affection to them. The next day the king, his two queens, and retinue came on board to pay us a formal visit, preceded by a band of music. The ladies had about sixty or seventy yards of Otaheite cloth wrapped around them, and were so bulky and unwieldy with it that we were obliged to hoist them aboard like horned cattle. Hogs, coconuts, bananas, a rich sort of peach, and a variety of ready-dressed puddings and victuals composed their present to the captain. As soon as they were on board, the captain disencumbered the ladies by rolling their linen around his middle, an indispensable ceremony here in receiving a present of cloth, and Madua, wife of Oripai, the king's brother, took a great liking to the captain's laced coat, which he immediately put on her with much gallantry, and that beautiful princess seemed much elated with her new finery. I cannot omit a circumstance of this lady's attachment to dress. There was a custom which had prevailed for a long time to present the god with all red feathers that be, could be procured. But thinking she would become red feathers full as well as his godship, immediately employed all her domestics making them up into fly-flaps and personal adornments to prevent the altar making a monopoly of the good things in this as well as other countries. A grand hieva was next day ordered for our entertainment ashore on Point Venus, and on our landing we were preceded by a band of music, and led to where the king and his levy were in waiting to receive us. The course was soon cleared by the chiefs, and the entertainment began by two men, who vied with each other in filthy and lascivious attitudes, and frightful distortions of their mouths. These having performed their part, two ladies, 
pretty fancifully dressed, as described in Captain Cook's voyages, were introduced after a little ceremony. Something resembling a turkey-cock's tail, stuck on their rumps in a fan kind of fashion, about five feet in diameter, had a good effect while the ladies kept their faces to us. But when, in a bending attitude, they presented their rumps to show the wonderful agility of their loins, the effect is better conceived than described. After half an hour's hard exercise, the dear creatures had roused themselves to a perfect furor, and the piece concluded by the ladies exposing that which is better felt than seen, and in that state of nature walked from the bottom of the theatre to the top where we were sitting on the grass, till they approached just by us, and when we complimented them in bowing with all the honours of war. These accomplishments are so much prized amongst them that girls come from the interior part of the country to the court residence for improvement in the Hieva, just as country gentlemen send their daughters to London boarding schools. This may well be called the Cerithia of the Southern Hemisphere, not only the beauty and elegance of the women, but their being so deeply versed in and so passionately fond of the Eleusian mysteries, and what poetic fiction has painted of Eden or Arcadia is here realized, where the earth without tillage produces both food and clothing, the trees loaded with the richest fruit, the carpet of nature spread with the most odoriferous flowers, and the fair ones ever willing to fill your arms with love. It affords a happy instance of contradicting an opinion propagated by philosophers of a less bountiful soil, who maintain that every virtuous or charitable act a man commits is for selfish or interested views. Here human nature appears in more amiable colors, and the soul of man, free from the gripping hand of want, acts with a liberality and bounty that does honor to his God. A native of this country divides everything in common with his friends, and the extent of the word friend by them is only bounded by the universe. And was he reduced to his last morsel of bread? He cheerfully halves it with him. The next that comes has the same claim, if he wants it, and so in succession to the last mouthful he has. Rank makes no difference in hospitality, for the king and the beggar relieve each other in common. The English are allowed by the rest of the world, and I believe with some degree of justice, to be a generous, charitable people. But the Otahitians could not help bestowing the most contemptuous word in their language upon us, which is piri-piri, or stingy. In becoming the tio or friend of a man, it is expected you pay him a compliment by cherishing his wife. But, being ignorant of that ceremony, I very innocently gave high offence to Maitura Ora, the king of York Island, 
to whom I was introduced as his friend, a shyness took place on the side of his majesty, from my neglect of his wife, but through the medium of Brown the interpreter he put me in mind of my duty, and on my promising my endeavours matters were for that time made up. It was, to me, however, a very serious inauguration. I was in the first place not a young man, and had been on shore a whole week. The lady was a woman of rank, being the sister to Otu, the king of Otaheite, and had in her youth been beautiful, and named Peggy Otu. She is the right-hand dancing figure so elegantly delineated in Cook's voyages. But Peggy had seen much service, and bore away many honourable scars in the field of Venus. However, his majesty's service must be done, and Matoura and I were again friends. He was a domesticated man, and passionately fond of his wife and children, but now became pensive and melancholy, dreading the child should be piebald, though the lady was six months advanced in pregnancy before we came to the island. The force of friendship amongst those good creatures will be more fully understood from the following circumstance. Churchill, the principal ringleader of the mutineers on his landing, became the Tio or friend of a great chief in the upper district. Some time after the chief happening to die without issue, his title and estate agreeable to the law of Tioship devolved on Churchill, who, having some dispute with one Thompson of the bounty, was shot by him. The natives immediately rose and revenged the death of Churchill, their chief, by killing Thompson, whose skull was afterwards shown us, and which bore evident marks of fracture. Odidi, although perfectly devoted to our interest, on being appointed one of the guides in the expedition against the mutineers, expressed great horror at the act he was going to commit, and betraying his friend, being Tio, to one of them. There was much less addiction to thieving than when Captain Cook visited them, and when things were stolen, by applying to the magistrate of the district, the goods were immediately returned, for like every other well-regulated police, the thief and the justice were one gang. Sometimes we slightly punished the offenders by cutting off their hair, a beautiful young creature, who lived at the observatory with one of our young gentlemen, slipped out of bed from him one night, and stole all his linen. She was punished for the theft by shaving one of her eyebrows and half the hair off her head. She immediately ran into the woods, and used to come once or twice a day to the tent to request looking at herself in the glass, but the grotesque figure she cut, with one side entirely bald, made her shriek out and run into the woods to shun society. With respect to agriculture, in a soil where nature has done so much, little is left to human industry. But had there been occasion of it, abilities would not be wanting. It is much to be lamented that the endeavours of the philanthropic Sir Joseph Banks were frustrated by the raising of everything which he took so much pains to rear amongst them a few shaddocks excepted. Tobacco and cotton have escaped their ravage, and they are much mortified that they cannot eradicate it from their grounds. But were a hand-loom on a simple construction 
as used by the natives of Java, introduced amongst them, they could soon turn their cotton to good account. An instance of their ingenuity and imitative power in matting was a thing perfectly unknown amongst them till Captain Cook introduced it from Anamooka, one of the friendly isles. But in that branch of manufacture they now far surpass the original. They have likewise abundance of fine sugar canes growing spontaneously all over the island, from which rum and sugar might be extracted. Indeed, an attempt was made by Coleman, the armorer of the bounty, who made a still, and succeeded, but dreading the effects of intoxication, most among, both amongst themselves and the natives, very wisely put an end to his labors by breaking the still. Captain Bly has likewise planted Indian corn, from which much may be expected. On our landing, as soon as public business of more importance would permit, our gentlemen were indefatigable in laying out a piece of garden ground and ditching it round. Lemons, oranges, limes, pineapples, plants of the coffee tree, with all the lesser class of things as onions, lettuces, peas, cabbage, and everything necessary for culinary purposes were planted, in order that they might not meet the same fate of the things planted by Sir Joseph Banks, Captain Edwards made use of every stratagem to make the chiefs fond of the oranges and limes, by dipping them in sugar, to cover the acid before it was presented to them to eat. Messrs. Corning and Hayward were equally zealous in using the most persuasive arguments with the chiefs to take care of our garden, and rear and propagate the plants when we were gone, to all of which they lent a deaf ear and treated the subject with much levity, saying that they might be very good to us, but that they were already plentifully supplied with everything wished or wanted, and had not occasion for more. But the lieutenants, representing that, if on our return they should supply us with plenty of such articles as we left with them, they might exchange them for hatchets, knives, and red cloth, they seemed more favorably inclined to our project, and I had no doubt that some after-navigators will reap the benefit of their industry. The breadfruit, although the most delicate and nourishing of food upon earth, is, with people like them, liable to inconveniences, for in such a group or archipelago of islands, whose inhabitants are in various gradations of refinement, from the gentle and polished Otahitian to the savage and cannibal Fiji, a war amongst them is often attended with devastation as well as famine. By cutting round the bark of the breadfruit tree, a whole country may be laid to waste for four or five years, young trees not bearing in less time. Crops, such as Indian corn, English wheat, and peas, that have been left amongst them, can in time of war be stored in granaries on the top of their almost inaccessible mountains. While speaking of the breadfruit tree, I cannot exemplify my subject from what happened to an island contiguous to Tahiti, whose coast abounded with fine fish, and the Otahitians, being themselves too lazy to catch them, destroyed all the breadfruit trees on this little island. 
by which act of policy they were obliged to send over boats with fish regularly to market to be supplied with bread in barter from Otaheite. To this island they likewise send their wives, thinking they become fair by living on fish and low diet. They also send boys for the same reason whom they keep for abominable purposes. As to religion of this country, it is difficult for me to define it. Their tenets, although equally ignorant of heathen mythology or theological intricacies, seem to partake of both, and like other nations in early stages of society are rendered subservient to political purposes as by the machinery of deification. The person of the king is sacred and invaluable. Notwithstanding the king to be a broad-shouldered strapping fellow, three sturdy stallions or lords-in-waiting are kept for the particular amusement of the queen when his majesty is in his cups. Yet the royal issue is always declared to be sprung from the immortal gods, and their heir apparent during his minority is put under the tuition of the high priest. Their god is supposed to be omnipresent, and is worshipped in spirit, idolatry not being known amongst them. The sacred mysteries are only known to the priests and augurs, the king, princes, and great chiefs, the common people only serving as victims or to fill up the pageantry of the religious procession. One of our gentlemen, expressing a wish to the high priest of carrying from amongst them that god whose altars craved so much human blood, he, like a true priest, had his subterfuge ready, by saying there were more of the same family in other islands from whence they could easily be supplied. On all great occasions, each district sends a male victim, and the island containing forty districts, it may be presumed the mortality is great. Between the sacrifices and the ravages of war, a preponderating number of females must have taken place, to counteract which a law passed that every other female child should be put to death at birth, and the husband, always officiating as ocarche to his wife, the child is destroyed as soon as the sex discovered. The absurdity of this inhuman law is now pretty evident. Women are become more scarce, and set a higher value on their charms, which occasions many desperate battles amongst them. Some with fractured skulls are sent on board of us, which had been got in amorous affrays of that kind. It may be naturally supposed that people of such gentle natures make no conspicuous figure in the theatre of war. Their war canoes are very large, on which a platform is placed capable of containing from a hundred and fifty to two hundred men, but their taste in decorating the prow of their men of war plainly indicates that they are more versed in the fields of Venus than Mars. Every man of war, having a figurehead of the god Priapus, with a preposterous insignia of his order, the sight of which never fails to excite great glee and good humor amongst the ladies. 
It is customary with those nations at war that the treaty of peace be confirmed by the conquerors sending a certain number of their women to cohabit with the nation that is vanquished, in order to conciliate their affection by a bond more lasting than wax and parchment. It was the unhappy lot of Otaheite to be overcome by a nation whose women were too masculine for them, they being accustomed to the amorous dalliance of their own beautiful females, were averse to familiar intercourse with strangers. The ladies returned with all the rage of disappointed women, and the war was renewed in all its horrors. They were well acquainted with the bow and arrow, but use it as an amusement. The only missive weapons they use are the sling and the spear. They have now amongst them about twenty stand of arms, and two hundred rounds of powder and ball. They can take a musket to pieces, and put it up again. Our good marksmen take proper care of their arms and ammunition, and are highly sensible of the superior advantage it gives them over the neighboring nations. In preparing and printing their cloth, the women display a great share of ingenuity and good taste. Many of their figures were exactly patterns which prevailed as fashionable when we left England, both striped and figured. They print their figured cloth by dipping the leaves in dye stuffs of different colors, and placing them as their fancy directs. Their cloth is of a different texture of fineness, from the stuff of the same nature in quality as the slightest Indian paper, to a kind as durable as some of our cottons, but they will not bear water, and of course become troublesome and expensive. They are generally made up in bales, running about two yards broad and twenty or thirty yards long. We had some thousands of yards of it sent on board as presents. Their sumptuary laws, at first sight, may appear severe toward the fair sex, who are not permitted to eat butcher meat, nor to eat at all in the presence of their husbands. It certainly does not convey the most delicate ideas to a mind impressed with much sensibility to see a fine woman devouring a piece of beef, and those voluptuaries who may be said to exist only by their women would naturally endeavor to remove the possibility of presupposing a disgusting idea in that object in which their happiness centers. Every woman, the queen and the royal family excepted, on the approach of the king, is denuded down to the waist, and continues so whilst his majesty is in sight. Should the king enter a woman's house, it is immediately pulled down. The king is never permitted to help himself with meat or drink, which makes him a very troublesome visitor, as he is never quiet while a bottle is in sight till he has had the last drop of it. Their houses are well adapted to temperate climate they inhabit, and generally consist of three chambers, the interior one of which the chief retires to after he has drunk his kava. A profound silence is observed during his repose, for should they be suddenly awakened, it produces violent vomiting and a train of uneasy sensations. Otherwise, if undisturbed, it proves a safe anodyne, creates amorous dreams and a powerful excitement to venery. In the adjoining chamber, his fair spouse 
awaits, with eager expectation to avail herself of the happy moment when her lord should awake, which is by slow degrees, and he is roused from Elysium by her gentle offices, in tenderly embracing every part of his body, until his ideal scenes of bliss are realized, and when fully sated with this luscious banquet, they retire to the bath to gather fresh vigor for renewal of similar joys. In this mazy round of chaste dissipation, the hours glide on, and the evening is spent in dancing to the music of Pan's pipe, the flute, and the hieva drum. They then go to the bath again, and the festivity of the evening is concluded with a repast of fruit and young coconut milk. The whole village indiscriminately join the feast, and the demon of rank and precedence, with their appendages, malevolence, and envy, has never yet disturbed their happy board. Happy would it have been for those people had they never been visited by Europeans, for to our shame it be spoken, disease and gunpowder is all the benefit they have ever received from us, in return for their hospitality and kindness. The ravages of venereal disease is evident from the mutilated objects so frequent amongst them, where death has not drawn a charitable veil over their misery by putting a period to their existence. A disease of the consumptive kind has of late made great havoc amongst them. This they call the British disease, as they have only had it since their intercourse with the English. In this complaint they are avoided by society, from a supposition of its being contagious, and in every old outhouse you will find miserable objects, for want of medical assistance, abandoned to their wretched fate. From what we could learn, it generally terminates fatally in ten or twelve months, but I am led to believe that in many cases it originates from the venereal disease. The voice of humanity, honor, and justice calls upon us as a nation to remedy those evils by sending some intelligent surgeon to live amongst them. They are at present panting for the pruning hand of civilization and the arts. Love and adore us as beings of superior nature, but gently abrade us with having left them in the same abject state they were in when first discovered. We had buoyed many of them with the hopes of carrying them to England with us, in order to secure their fidelity and honesty, especially those who were the most useful in our domestic concerns. But on explaining to them that even bread was not to be obtained in England without labor, they lost hopes of their favorite voyage. Large presents were now brought us for our sea-store, and notwithstanding Mr. Bentham our purser, having most liberally supplied the ship with four pounds of fresh pork per man each day, it made no apparent scarcity. Besides salting some thousand weight and a prodigious number of goats, fowls, and other things, could we have made it convenient to have stayed another week, some cows were promised to have been sent from a neighboring island. Captain Cook had left them a horse, a mare, a cow, a calf, and a bull, but, from some mistake, they killed the horse instead of one of the cows, and found it very tough, disagreeable eating. 
by which means they were disgusted with all horned cattle, and drew an unfavourable conclusion that their meat was all of the same texture. Had some pains been taken with them to get the better of a dislike they have to milk, and explain to them how variously it might be employed as food, I have no doubt they would have paid more attention to the horned cattle. They used to persist in saying that milk was urine, but on pointing to a woman that was suckling a child and pushing their own argument, they seemed convinced of their error. We have left them with a goose and a gander, which they take much delight in. Idea, the queen, endeavored to conquer that absurd dislike, and at last became fond of milk in her tea. A painting of Captain Cook, done in oil by Weber, which had been delivered to Captain Edwards on his first landing, was now returned to them. It is held by them in the greatest veneration, and I should not be surprised if, one day or other, divine honors should be paid it. They still believe Captain Cook is living, and their seeing Mr. Bentham our purser, whom they perfectly recollect as having been on the voyage with him, and spoke their language, will confirm them in that opinion. The harbor was surveyed by Mr. George Passmore, the master, an able and experienced officer. Our officers here, as at Rio de Janeiro, showed the most manly and philanthropic disposition by giving up their cabins and sacrificing every comfort and convenience for the good of mankind in accommodating boxes with plants of breadfruit trees that the laudable intentions of government might not be frustrated from the loss of his majesty's ship bounty we now completed our water from an excellent spring out of a rock close to the water's edge at Orafei. King Otu, his queen Adia, came on board, and were importunate in their solicitations of Captain Edwards, requesting him to take them to England with him. Aridi the concubine likewise requested the same favor, but she more generously begged that they might all three go together. But Oropai and the other chiefs, remonstrated against his going, as they were on the eve of a war. We were now perfectly ready for sea, and as Captain Cook's picture is presented to all strangers, it is customary for navigators to write their observations on the back of it, and so our arrival and departure were notified upon it. The ship was filled with coconuts and fruit, and as many pigs, goats, and fowls as the decks and the boats could hold. The dismal day of our departure now arrived, and I believe was the first time that an Englishman got up his anchor at the remotest part of the globe with a heavy heart to go home to his own country. Every canoe almost in the island was hovering round the ship, and they began to mourn, as is customary for the death of a near relation. They bared their bodies, cut their heads with shells, smeared their breasts and shoulders with warm blood, as it streamed down, and as the blood ceased flowing, they renewed their wounds in their head, attended with a dismal yell. Otu now took leave of us, and with tears trickling down his cheeks, begged to be remembered to King George. The tender was put in commission, and the command given to Mr. Oliver, the master's mate, 
Mr. Renard, a midshipman, James Dodds, quartermaster, and six privates were put on board of her. She was decked, beautifully built, and the size of a Gravesend boat. The end of chapter one, part two of A Voyage Round the World by George Hamilton.